uncertain times that we are in, and they are strange. We will, by my 100th day in office, have administered 200 million shots in people's arms. That's right, 200 million shots in 100 days. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close. Have you decided whether you are going to run for re-election in 2024? You haven't set up a re-election campaign yet, as your predecessor had by this time. <laughs> My predecessor need to, needed to. <laughs> My predecessor. Oh, God, I miss him. Um, no, the answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. But folks, I'm going. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And with that, Joe Biden conducted his first fully extended press conference as president of the United States from the moment he took his hand off the Bible and became the nation's 46th chief executive. Fernando Mondi back on another edition of the Strange Days podcast. And folks, it has indeed been a couple of weeks since we took a little R&R and recharged our batteries and got our heads straight. But we are back with a vengeance as we look at Joe Biden, who some people say is actually turning into perhaps the most progressive and consequential Democratic American president since LBJ, especially when you look at everything he's done in under 100 days as the president of the United States. But there are others that say Joe Biden goes there, but for the grace of God, or maybe even perhaps a little bit of luck, Irish Catholic luck, was Joe Biden lucky to win the election? Well, that's the question we're going to take up on this edition of the podcast as we welcome back one of our faves, Amy Parnes, the senior correspondent for The Hill newspaper, and her friend and co-author, Jonathan Allen, who together, they, the authors of the new book, Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. You, of course, know Jonathan Allen as a senior political analyst with NBC News Digital. He was also previously the White House bureau chief for Politico, and Amy herself did her tour at Politico. They also wrote the book together shattered the story of Hillary Clinton's doomed 2016 presidential campaign. Was Joe Biden the lucky one or was it in the stars all along? Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes join me, Fernando Mondi, your host, for another edition of the Strange Days podcast, which starts right now.
We are back on the Strange Days podcast, and I always look forward to getting some of the best and the brightest on to talk about the latest in the realm of the political, but none more so than our two guests who are returning guests, that is, here to talk about the brand new book that chronicled the Joe Biden campaign and his remarkable Lazarus style back from the dead campaign resurrection. It is the book Lucky How Joe Biden barely won the presidency by the number one New York Times best-selling offers of the Hillary Clinton campaign book from 2016, Shattered. It is, of course, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. Amy, the senior correspondent for The Hill newspaper. Jonathan, who is the senior political analyst with NBC News Digital, also the previously the White House bureau chief for Politico and for Bloomberg News. And near and dear to my heart, Amy, a fellow 305er. Welcome back, Amy and Jonathan, to Strange Days. Thanks, Fernand. It's so good to be here. So, yeah, what Amy said. You know, speaking of having you back, I got to start with maybe the obvious question, which is this is your second in terms of the embedded process where you followed the presidential campaign in 16 and in 20. First and foremost, just from the coverage perspective, was one more interesting? Was one more revelatory? Which of the two experiences did you find the most satisfying and, and educational as reporters? Okay, I think they were different, Fernand. I think um, obviously both involved Donald Trump. Both were very um, dramatic in their own ways. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting because I think Joe Biden succeeded in ways that Hillary Clinton didn't. Um, John and I talk a little bit about this in the book. He had a message from start to finish. Um, he started with his message and ended with his me- with the same message, which is something that Hillary Clinton really struggled with. And, and his message was important because it was essentially saying, I, I'm the only one who can defeat Donald Trump, which was a message that carried through the primary. And then he he tried to unify in the general election. And he thought that he was the only one who could actually bring break the fever in the country. Um, and we we talk a little bit about that in the book. Um, but I think you know there's there was so much drama in this one, and that's why it was really fun to write and report. Um, you know, we go through the primary, and people know what happened. They know how he kind of came back from the dead, but they don't know how dead that campaign really was. And John and I kind of take you inside. They were lacking for they were lacking money. They thought at one point that Joe Biden they they brought the idea to him about maybe. Um, refinancing his house. It was that bad. And, um, and so we really take you inside what was going on. And, um, and, and there are so many fun anecdotes. And, you know, I think one of the most interesting things was that no one really believed that Joe Biden could actually win, including Barack Obama. And so we take you inside those meetings, inside what Obama's thinking, um, and, and that's sort of what's so great about this book. You know, Jonathan, as, as Amy talks about, the campaign was basically dead. I mean, after, of course, the New Hampshire primary, it just seemed like this thing was DOA. And yet there's something fascinating to be about how you both chronicle all of these elements 
especially in contrast to, you know, the very sophisticated, well-funded traditional campaign operations that I think we saw throughout the 2020 primary process, certainly by the Warren campaign, later by the financial behemoth, which was the Bloomberg campaign, which basically did not lack for a single resource. And then even when you look at back what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016, she had a very traditional, conventional campaign. And yet, Biden pulls this off. We also saw Donald Trump, as you chronicled and shattered, pulled off with a very unconventional campaign. And I guess my question for you, Jonathan, is have we seen a shift in how the traditional campaigns even matter anymore at the national level? Are these campaign proof elections in a sense and really more driven by the candidate themselves? I generally think that what you're saying is right, that they're driven by the candidates themselves. And yet um, one of the reasons that this book is called Lucky is how close Donald Trump came to winning a second term. Um, And all of the energy and and money and on the ground campaigning that goes into uh, those battles. If you look at the, uh, if you look at the three states of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, uh, if Donald Trump wins those states, he is president of the United States. Biden won them by a combined 42,918 votes, which in an election in which 158 million people cast ballots is a very, very small fraction. And even within each state, it's less than a point. I think it's a quarter point in one of the states, a third in, in one of the others, and, and two-thirds in, in the third. Um, two of those states, Trump got a higher percentage of the vote in 2020 and lost the state, meaning that because there weren't third-party candidates this time or third-party candidates to speak of, Trump actually did better in, in two of the states that he that he ceded uh, to the Democrats. So this was an extraordinarily close election. And so you say, well, you know, do the campaigns matter? And the, the answer is everything matters. And so, Bernie, Amy, if, I, if I may, yeah, I think please. that's what people don't understand. Um, we, we've been getting a lot of tweets and comments from people saying, barely? What do you mean barely? It was 81 million. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't, you know, that the reality is that that doesn't matter. We run on the Electoral College, and it was actually, the margins were much slimmer than 2016. We came this close to a second term for Donald Trump. So, but Amy, with with that said, and you're right, I mean, the, the popular vote does not determine the election. And I think, you know, for us insiders that really pay close attention, you know, Jonathan couldn't have been more correct. It was such a small margin that not only prevented Trump from winning, but also the Republicans from having total control. I think the figure was 92,000 votes would have meant the presidency and both majorities in the Congress for the Republicans. But w- when looking at the elements where Jonathan says everything mattered. Did you as reporters, did you see either a tactical decision or something in the process in real time that you said, you know what, that's smart. That is the sort of decision right there that if they made it differently, perhaps would not have gotten him so lucky and captured the White House. Well, there were so many lucky moments. And that's sort of what we talk about in this book. You know, we we talk about how he sort of scraped by in the primary and for a while, people were latching on to Michael Bloomberg. Um, Michael Bloomberg was going to enter the race and did enter the race. And then Hillary Clinton, as we report in the book, was even thinking about it because no one believed that Biden could actually win the primary. And so you have all these people um, 
kind of thinking, and even John Kerry, you know, we go into his thinking in the book and how he was going to jump in the race. But I think, you know, and what, what was remarkable is that there were moments like the Elizabeth Warren moment in Nevada, where she takes out Michael Bloomberg, she completely destroys him um, at, at the right moment where he is scoring endorsements and um, he's lining up donors and, you know, she destroys him and he's out of the race. And that really helped Biden in a way. And, and then you have Jim Clyburn and how that endorsement wasn't a sure thing. And we take you inside that story and how he was able to secure Clyburn's endorsement and how Clyburn had concessions. He really wanted a black Supreme Court justice. And he said, at this debate, I want you to talk about it. And when he saw Joe Biden not talking about it during the debate, during a commercial break, he runs out of his seat and runs to go find Joe Biden. And we have this this scene in the book where he's essentially saying, look, I told you this is what you needed to do and you haven't done it. And that's sort of how the Joe Biden moment at the debate came to be. So there were all these moments that kind of added up. um, And that's why we called it lucky because it was, it was a series, a string of events that sort of led to the rise and led to um, to catapult him into the White House ultimately. Jonathan, speaking of lucky, was it just pure dumb luck that Joe Biden was able to vanquish with a lot less of the internal uh, divisions and residents, the main foe that Hillary Clinton faced in the primary process in 2016 in Bernie Sanders? Or, or again, was it tactical decisions that were made where the Biden campaign or Biden himself was able to impose a strategic element that Hillary Clinton was just unable to do in 2016? I think it's both. Um, and uh, you know, to, to Amy's point, I mean, the idea of being lucky isn't pejorative. I don't know anybody who plays the lottery that hopes that they get unlucky or hopes that they don't have luck with them. I don't know anybody who plays sports that doesn't think that there's a little uh, element of chance that comes into, you know, whether Kim Camper intercepts a touchdown for the uh, for the Dolphins in the 80s and wins the Super Bowl or drops it and the, and the Washington football team wins the Super Bowl. You know, so when you talk about um, when we talk about lucky and you know the coalescence of the co- coalescing of the Democratic Party uh, behind B- Biden is a huge part of that. Uh, part of it is that Joe Biden has kept up relationships with a lot of these people. Um, you know, where where Bernie Sanders wanted to take out Hillary Clinton in 2016, Joe Biden was helping Bernie Sanders plot how to take down Hillary Clinton in 2016. So by the time they get to a dis- debate stage in 2020, they have a relationship. Um, you know, Biden as vice president had a relationship with. Elizabeth Warren, who he courted uh, when he thought he was going to be running in 2016, he courted her and uh, wanted her endorsement and told her that he would pick her for vice president if he uh, became the Democratic nominee. I mean, these are people he has developed relationships with. And even then, it was difficult in some circumstances. He needed Barack Obama to step in uh, to get some of the endorsements. He needed, uh, you know, the Democratic sort of establishment donor network to get behind him after South Carolina. So when, you know, when we talk about Lockheed, um, one of the things we say at the very beginning of the book is uh, luck is the residue of design. Um, Joe Biden was in a place where he could take advantage of the breaks that went his way. Um, and, and that's extreme. I think that's an extremely important idea. And it's one that I, you know, we show through story after story after story that Biden set himself up to be in a position to take advantage of these breaks. Also, just, you know, sort of more broadly, our republic held after this election, this extremely close election in which uh, Republican secretaries of state were pressured by the president to 
not certify results in which 160 lawsuits or something like that were thrown out of court. The Supreme Court uh, threw them out. The Capitol was stormed. Congress consecrated the election results anyway. And our founding fathers put together this, this beautiful architecture that was meant to bend without breaking that could sort of handle any um, exigencies of a moment. And, uh, and, and yet we were still lucky at the end that the Republic stood uh, and withstood all of that. And, and to that extent, I think also luck is the residue of design, a, a phrase I've borrowed, um, you know, freely from Branch Rickey, the, uh, the former owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, Amy, I, I don't mean to, to, to hammer down on this point, but again, it's so central to the book and, and even in the title. And, and I know you have relationships with many of the protagonists involved, so I wouldn't dare ask you to reveal names or anything. But did, did you get a sense on your own? Were, were you seeing and experiencing, if you will, quote, the brightest minds in, in democratic presidential politics, both in the in the primary and in the general election campaign? Or, or again, I'm, I'm just fascinated with this philosophical idea that what is the difference between just providential luck and circumstance versus the ability of thought and strategy and experience to impose what would be a political outcome on the process, which is what a campaign is supposedly all about. What was your feeling watching that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they had a lot of moments, a lot of a playbook that had never really been written. I mean, most of the, you know, going into the the tail end of the primary and then going into the election, we were, um, the nation faced uh, the COVID uh, crisis. And so I, I think that they were trying to figure out what to do in that moment in real time. You know, they of course had a plan, but no one expected the coronavirus to keep everyone locked in. And so I think part of that was they they were trying to be strategic, but it also helped him. And we talk a lot about that in the book, like the, the, the um, coronavirus happens and they're trying to figure out a way to um, to talk every day and they can't. They're being kind of trounced in the airwaves by then President Trump and by someone like Andrew Cuomo, who's talking about New York every day, and they can't break through. And that was frustrating to them. And they made the decision to kind of keep the, the former vice president in the in his basement. And, and were they were kind of razzed a lot by Republicans for doing that. They, they were saying, oh, you know, the, the phrase Hyden Biden came around. And but, you know, that was a strategy that actually ended up working for them, because I think a lot of them, if they're being honest with you, they they told us they had fears of him going out and making these gaffes that he's famous for and, um, you know, talking off the cuff. And in a way, the coronavirus uh, helped him because it gave him an excuse. I don't think it was an ex- I think he was doing the right thing, obviously, by keeping staying home. Um, but I think that uh, but it also helped him in a way that he wasn't out there every day and he wasn't making these missteps. And we, we report in the book at one point, Anita Dunn, who's a senior advisor to Biden says to an associate, I think that COVID was the best thing that ever happened to him. So we know that they were, they were talking that way sort of behind the scenes, you know, they were happy to sort of keep him um, in his house for the majority of the uh, general election. Jonathan, if you could talk to me about, uh, I think what may be the heart of the whole 
book, really in terms of describing that moment or the moments where the Biden campaign went from being on the slab in the morgue and into the graveyard to now uh, occupying the, the Oval Office. And it really has to do around the concept of an endorsement, uh, the endorsement of an African-American, but maybe not the one that a lot of folks would have thought would have been the clincher for Joe Biden. And, and I think of this tale of two potential endorsements from this African-American. And, and I'm thinking first about Barack Obama. Obama, one that a lot of folks would have thought that could have been the clincher. Yet for Joe Biden, it was not. It was a congressman from the state of South Carolina. Of course, I'm talking about James Clyburn. And I'm just wondering if you could give me the the yin and the yang of these two individuals whose specter hung over this process. But if really anyone was determinative, it was not Obama who had selected Biden as his VP, but the congressman from South Carolina. Talk to us a little bit about that. If you go back in history, the Clyburn uh, uh, ability to weigh in, um, you know, is something that folks will remember from 2008 uh, when he was studiously staying out of the primary, but then sort of attacked uh, Bill Clinton for saying things that he said were uh, were racist at the time, which was very helpful to Barack Obama in, this, in the South Carolina primary in 2008. And then in 2016, he was, uh, you know, he endorsed Hillary Clinton, and that was a big deal for her. Um, the, there's probably, um, you know, no figure in, certainly no figure in South Carolina Democratic po- politics with the cloud of Joe, Jim Clyburn and no, um, you know, until Kamala Harris was elected vice president, um, you know, no one in, in uh, government who's African-American who had more clout. Uh, and, and because of his relationships, um, you know, Clyburn is, uh, has a longer history than even, you know, Harris, who's, who's now the vice president. But you know, what you saw was for two consecutive election cycles, Barack Obama refused to endorse his uh, vice president in a primary. And we, um, you know, detail in the book how uh, Biden, uh, Obama actually went to Biden's aides or had them come to him uh, in early 2019 and said to them, you know, I, uh, he, he wasn't worried that Joe Biden was going to lose. He expected Joe Biden to lose. He was worried Biden was going to embarrass himself and thus tarnish Biden's legacy and Obama's legacy. And he wanted to make sure that the aides wouldn't let Joe Biden trip up so much that he, that he um, you know, did tarnish that legacy. So Obama was out of the picture. We talk about, you know, Biden going to Reverend Al Sharpton trying to get his endorsement. Sharpton doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't want to play ball on that. He goes to Stacey Abrams. She doesn't want to play ball on it. Um, and eventually Clyburn, uh, you know, he's pressured by Biden and people close to Biden, including Cedric Richmond, the congressman from Louisiana, who's the national co-chair of the Biden campaign and is a close friend of Clyburn's, to endorse, especially when Biden was at his lowest moments, um, you know, right after the New Hampshire primary. Uh, Richmond went to, to Clyburn and said, you got to do it now. I mean, it's not going to be worth anything pretty soon because uh, Biden's not going to be able to survive without South Carolina. And so, you know, Amy talked a little bit before about how that how those machinations played out um, in the end. But but Clyburn held back and held back. And then when he gave his endorsement, it was hugely emotional. If folks remember that moment, uh, Clyburn was talking about his late wife um, who had who had died relatively recently and how much she loved Joe Biden. And he had known Biden for, you know, four decades. And um, and, and he gave this sort of emotional lift that really turned what was probably what probably would have been a narrow and uh and unimpressive biden victory in south carolina into a turbocharged oh my goodness joe biden is back he's resurrected kind of win and and then 
as we all know, the, the dominoes fell um, of all the Democrats getting behind Biden between that day and, and Super Tuesday. Amy, what do you think that has had in terms of an effect on the Biden um, uh, Obama relationship? Of course, much was made about their bromance and how they were best buds and whatnot. But you know, as Jonathan alluded to, he had two opportunities to endorse him over four years, uh, did not do so. Biden ends up winning an election that, uh, as you write in the book and Chronicle, Obama felt he never had a chance to do so. Are, are those tensions maybe uh, some that have permanently strained the relationship? I think they overall have a very good relationship and they're very fond of each other, obviously. Um, I do think that, as John mentioned earlier, Obama thought that he couldn't win. And we detail in the book, there were a few moments actually that were very telling. For starters, Joe Biden always said that he told Barack Obama not to endorse him. That conversation we found out never happened, um, according to someone very close to the president. So they were a bit surprised by that. And also, there's a very telling moment in the book where uh, Barack Obama goes to, he's speaking to a bunch of um, very influential um, Black businessmen at a private dinner. And it's, he's very loose. Um, he likes these guys a lot. And he's, he's sort of, um, he's telling them exactly what he thinks. He knows that press isn't around and you know, he trusts them. He knows that this isn't going to get out of the room. And so they ask him, so what do you think about the horse race right now? Who's up? Who's down? What is going on? Who do you, who, who are you liking? And he talks a lot about Elizabeth Warren. And um, a, a source told us it was almost like an Elizabeth Warren sermon um, where he's, he's talking about her and he doesn't really mention Kamala Harris or anyone else. He kind of um, pokes fun at Pete Buttigieg. He calls him short. He, he says that, you know, he kind of lists the reasons why he won't win, uh, one of them being that he's gay. And then he forgets the best, almost like the, the best part of this whole conversation and the most interesting is that he forgets Joe Biden and has to be reminded um, you know, someone tells him, what about, you forgot Biden, talk about Biden a little bit. And so that sort of is a very revealing moment um, in terms of where his head was in the fall of 2019. Jonathan, what was the sense that you got as we move now to the general election as the Biden campaign and the brain and the inner trust and the, and the, the brain trust is watching now the Trump campaign. Are, are they looking at this operation? Are they concerned about the classical traditional campaign elements? Or, or is it really just a function of trying to navigate these events and trying to be as savvy around the great unknowns like the pandemic, like the George Floyd situation, as you both chronicle in the book, or, or, or some of these other elements beyond their control in the debates uh, in the latter stages of the general? All of the above. Uh, you know, I mean, they're paid to, the campaign operatives and the candidates are paid to worry about everything. I think, you know, as Amy alluded to earlier, Biden's team, you know, once they took him off the campaign trail, which was a uh, a function of him declaring that he wasn't going to camp campaign um, if he was uh, at risk of getting COVID and dying, um, which obviously because simply because of his age, it was a, a real risk for him. What they started to realize pretty soon was, um, they could control his message and that it was uh, an opportunity to be patient and to be uh, thoughtful with what they said and when they said it. And conversely, that President Trump was blowing the bully puppet pulpit. Like he wasn't using it the way that a president could in a crisis to rally the country 
around him. Um, and, and, you know, there were all those moments of, of Donald Trump in these press briefings saying things like people should inject disinfectant for anybody who's listening. Please do not inject disinfectant, uh, you know, to, to combat COVID. Um, they're watching all this and they, they realize that it's cutting to their benefit. Um, you know, with the George Floyd situation uh, and the and the protests for racial justice and some of the, the violence um, that, that uh, accompanied that, um, there was a real tension within the Biden campaign. And we, we go into this in depth about uh, whether he should move to the left and get to where the activists were. Um, and there were people high up in his campaign who told him that he should apologize for the crime bill of 1994 that he authored, uh, that he should um, embrace the term defund the police, um, which was something that Republicans were, Republicans wanted to say defund the police more than Democrats did because it was uh, having a political um, backlash effect on Democrats. And, you know, Biden and his top advisors just pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and, and said he wasn't going to do that. He might embrace some police reforms, but he was never going to say defund the police. In fact, he wrote an op-ed in USA Today declaring um, that he didn't believe in it and he frequently said it from the campaign trail. But there was a real fight over a course of weeks and, and even a couple of months, really, uh, between um, some of the younger uh, campaign staffers and some of the, the sort of older, older, whiter advisors around him. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're trying to manage all of those things. And then the basic typical campaign stuff that you can't do or that they could have done but chose not to do in terms of getting out and knocking on doors. Um, you know, traditionally, um, you know, they're spending millions and millions of dollars and there are all over the country in the swing states, people uh, knocking on doors for the candidates. The Republicans had that going. The Democrats didn't have that at all really until, um, you know, well after Labor Day. Um, and there was there had been a decision inside the campaign not to do it, and then then Biden reversed it when some uh, when some leading Democrats, including Jim Clyburn, said that was a terrible idea to to stay off the you know the door knocking entirely. Um, and then they had to figure out how to deal with uh, you know mail in balloting and early voting in a way that um, that no one's ever seen before, and at a time when the president of the United States was sowing doubt about uh, the validity of uh, mail in votes. So. Um, there was a lot to consider uh, and a lot that had to get done for the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign operating on, under d different circumstances. And one thing we haven't even really talked about, this book is chock full of inside stuff on, uh, on the Trump campaign. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, they, they had to consider all of it and they couldn't leave any stone unturned. And, and, and as we talked about before with the 43,000 votes separating Trump from the presidency again, um, you know, there was there was nothing the Democrats did that helped them win that they uh, that they could have avoided doing. You know, a Amy, to, to Jonathan's point, though, I was fascinated by that passage. You know, you guys write about uh, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who was the Biden campaign manager for the general, telling the team repeatedly, there's a chance we're not going to knock on another door or single door in this campaign. Jonathan talked about those tensions. But yet the lack of funds that would have been spent on canvassing was certainly not that there was not enough money to go around. That money was made up for, and you know, I think they raised close to a billion dollars, and it was put on the traditional matters, you know, paid television and whatnot. Did you get a sense from the campaign that because they won, does that maybe mean a course correction for how national campaigns operate going forward? More of an investment on the paid communications, less on the ground since they were successful this time? Or was that just an aberration due to COVID? I think it's an aberration due to COVID, but 
I think more importantly, Fernand, you know, this book isn't just um, a postmortem on what happened here and what how Biden barely won. It's basically a guide for Democrats to look at how close this was. And if anyone thinks that they can sort of cruise into um, 2022 and 2024 on this model or on what Democrats did this time, um, they are mistaken. I think that they need to sort of keep reinventing, keep learning lessons from, you know, a good, I think Stacey Abrams did it right, obviously, in Georgia. But the, the Democrats have a lot to learn. I mean, I think that they, they kept talking about a blue wave overall. That blue wave kind of didn't happen. You know, it there there are lessons to be learned here about how to do things better um, and about how to take what happened here and kind of push it forward into the upcoming elections. You know, I want to stay on that point, Amy, with you and, and also to get Jonathan's take. But is there consciousness now, do you believe, from those same folks around that point? Or is there still the euphoria and, you know, the easy uh, ability to have the amnesia around the fact that the ultimate endgame happened? They did win, whether the blue wave materialized or not not. Are those lessons, do you think, fully aware? Are they sensitive to that for 22 and 24 or not really? I don't know if they are because this this election was an election against Donald Trump for the most part. Um, And what if there is no Donald Trump in 2024? How can Democrats win? How can they? I, I think there's still somewhat of an identity crisis going on within the party, who it is, what it represents. Um, and those are kind of the questions that Democrats need to be asking. Um, I'm sensing a lot of, no, we won and a win is a win. Okay, a win is a win, but um, you have to see, you have to kind of take note about who the opponent was right now and um, what this election was about. And I, I still think the Democrats really need to figure out who they are. Um, there is this sort of infighting that will continue to happen between progressives in the party and more moderates. And, um, and I think that a lot of people saw this as sort of a referendum against uh, the progressive platform. But I know the progressive platform is where the energy of the party is right now. So I think all of those questions need to be asked going into 2022 and 2024. Jonathan, speaking of those questions, I want to selfishly go into one. And again, you talk about this in the book, um, the, the debate over numbers and how analytics versus traditional polling again reared itself and then how that manifests in the what a lot of folks thought was the optimistic polling figures that didn't quite match what we ended up seeing finally in the actual results. Tell us a little bit about that tension between analytics and polling, and more importantly, what you think and the polling industry, how do they come out of this experience in the 2020 cycle? You know, it's interesting. The, um, there are sort of three or four sets of numbers that, that you have to look at. There's the, the sort of public polling averages that everybody takes a look at, right? Real clear politics. Um, you know, keeps those. You can get them from 538, you know, and various other, uh, various other folks who are, who are essentially trying to get an average of public polls and, and maybe weight them one way or another based on the, um, you know, the, the value of, uh, of, of each poll in the past. Um, then you've got uh, what the data analytics team for the Biden campaign thought, you know, where the, the race stood. Which was the which was more bearish than the public polling. The public polling looked more like Biden was ahead than the data analytics team for uh, Biden. And and what they what they do is collect all kinds of data. Um, you know, 
millions and millions and millions of, of, of items of data, um, including stuff that comes back from sort of uh, what you would call like horse race or instant result uh, kind of polling that they're able to do, um, you know, electronically. Um, then you had the pollsters for Biden who were more bearish than that, um, but still thought he was on track to win. Uh, then you had what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the Trump team's polling, which, um, you know, which put him in a position to be, you know, and, and his data analytics in the polling are, are maybe merged a little bit more, um, you know, by by his top campaign group and, and Bill Steppi and the campaign manager, Dan. But like they're they're looking at their own set of information. And, and basically what happens is on election night, um, even though the Democrats had had sort of reconfigured the data analytics team and the polling team did it separately. They used their own sort of separate metrics for it, even though they had like kind of tried to factor in what you might call a hidden Trump vote, which really just means um, that Biden would do worse among uh, less educated or non-college educated white people um, than public polling showed. They both tried to adjust for that, but they adjusted in ways that gave them different outputs. Um, all of which is to say, uh, in the swing states that made a difference, you know, these races are, you know, you're familiar with this. These races are so close that they're a coin flip and that no pollster or uh, data analytics person in a race that ended the way that this did could have been uh, accurately confident about which way it would turn out. And we watched that developing in the book. We watch it developing over election night as all these people are sort of watching their screens and thinking like, well, we haven't got, neither side felt like the bottom had dropped out. Neither side was hitting the marks that they thought they needed to to be sure of victory and and both sides thought they were in a reasonably good position to win and then fox calls arizona for joe biden and in the trump war room in the map room on the first floor of the white house his aides are shocked their jaws are dropping trump's up in the residence same thing jaw dropping how could they call arizona it's so close when within thousands of votes it should never be called it's so so close and what's going on in the Biden data analytics team at that point is the exact same thing. They're looking at the numbers and saying, there's no way Fox can call this right now. It's too close to call. Um, and so, you know, I think the broad, the larger lesson is one that we've known for a long time, which is that traditional polling is much better at message testing. Um, it, it can be effective for horse racing, but horse race testing, you know, which candidates up or down. Um, but it is, it has a, um, a, a bigger advantage in terms of message testing and trying to figure out uh, what it is what voters want with sort of a deeper question set than the sort of instant horse race uh, polling that data analytics can do. Um, they both have their value. There's certainly a war between them. But what we really learned coming out of this is uh, public polling is is not able to pick up where Republicans are. I mean, Donald Trump got 74 million votes. There's not a single pollster, um, you know, for a uh, news organization or uh, on the Democratic side that would have predicted 74 million votes for Donald Trump. Um, meanwhile, his team knew where he was. Just a couple quick more before we let you go. Amy, again, I'm just riveted by the idea of, of, of truly how lucky the Biden campaign was to emerge as the nominee and then go on to win and beat Donald Trump. But how lucky do you think, Amy, the Democratic Party was that Biden 
was so lucky? Or, or do you think any of his other primary candidates might have had um, success and won the election against Trump and maybe even won by a more comfortable margin had they been a little bit luckier and vanquished Biden in those primaries? No, I think the party was lucky to have Biden be the nominee because I, I don't see, um, and a lot of people might disagree with me, but I, I don't see anyone else beating Trump. And that was part of the problem. And that's sort of why I think in the end, you saw the end of the primary, you kind of saw Clyburn. He's, he's the house whip. And he, what his job was, is he kind of whipped everyone into shape. And he kind of was the first person, the first one with a massive amount of clout to say, this is why we have to do this. Um, and I'm sure behind the scenes, um, as we report in the book, there were others, including um, Obama, who thought, okay, um, we can't win on a, uh, with Bernie Sanders, so we have to get behind Joe Biden. Um, and why everyone sort of coalesced in the end around um, Joe Biden. And even Obama, when Pete Buttigieg drops out and he had a pretty good race in the primary, but he he calls Buttigieg to congratulate him on a good run and 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 tells him, you know, this is your moment to sort of you have you'll never have as much clout as you do in this moment and get behind Joe Biden. And 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 then the dominoes fell from there. You know, you saw everyone kind of get behind Biden because they knew they could not have a repeat of 2016. So a little curveball for you both here at the end. Um, obviously, you are reporters, but you're reporters that have had privileged bird's eye access to apples to apples presidential campaigns. Uh, in 2016, you saw firsthand the Hillary Clinton campaign come up just short and a little bit unlucky and shattered. And, and now here, of course, in the Biden experience, because of his luck, he is the 40 sixth president of the United States. So if a nameless candidate for president were to come to you in 2024, assuming Biden does not run and says, all right, Amy, all right, Jonathan, I know you guys aren't campaign professionals, but give us your analysis. What do we need to focus on? What do we need to build the candidacy around? And what should we de-emphasize? What are the things that you don't think work anymore? What do you tell them? Jonathan, let's start with you. It's funny, in, uh, in Shattered, our 2016 book, there were sort of two big takeaways, I thought, from a strategic standpoint. One was, you got to have a message um, that tells people what it is you're going to give them, and it has to be something that they want. And then the second piece was, uh, Jenna Malley Dillon, who ended up being Biden's campaign manager, was the runner-up um, for Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. And I think we made pretty clear in the book that we felt like she would have been a, been a better choice than uh, Robbie Mook, who ended up running his campaign. So Joe Biden comes out and uh, and has a message that's about something people want, which is, uh, you know, essentially a return to normalcy, a little calm after Trump, um, and and how he can deliver it. And he hires Jen O'Malley Dillon to be his campaign manager. I'm not saying that we are uh, perfectly brilliant or geniuses or that anybody would want us to be their campaign managers, but just to give a little background on sort of what that book meant. And the, the first advice I would give somebody else is say, you know, in the, in the future, say so you got to read Lucky. And the, the most important thing in this book, I think, for uh, for the Democratic Party going forward, and, uh, and there are things that are important for the Republican Party going forward too, but for the Democratic Party going forward, I think, you know, they have to figure out how they can sell what they're doing um, or change what they're doing uh, to more effectively win over uh, voters in the states where they need to win the Electoral College. Because as Amy said before, 
there's a lot, a big part of the Democratic Party that is focused on, um, you know, winning a national popularity contest. And if you're trying to win the chess match of the Electoral College and the chess match of, uh, of redistricting uh, and how that affects who controls the House, uh, and the chess match of Senate races where only a third of the Senate is up every two years, you can't win those by kicking field goals. And if the concentration of the Democratic Party strategically is on um, getting the most votes nationally, they will continue to be in a place where they um, often win the uh, the popular vote and lose the presidency, which they've done a couple of times in the last uh, in the last two decades. Amy, last word goes to you. When that uh, Democratic candidate sits down with you and says, "All right, Amy Parnes, what am I doing and what am I not doing?" What are you going to tell them based on now having seen? two presidential campaigns up close, a winner and a loser. I think John's right. I mean, the biggest thing is message. I think that's why Biden was able to pull this out, in addition to the fact that he was able to kind of pull the party together. But I do think that this this election was a referendum on Donald Trump, mostly, and not so much on Joe Biden. And so I think you need to sort of... Um, you need to learn the lessons of this, but you need to play it forward. Um, I don't. I think you can take lessons away from this, but I think you need to also look at what Stacey Abrams was able to do in Georgia and try to model what she did there in places like our home state of Florida, where Democrats <laughs> yeah, have right. lost the last couple of elections. Um, because, and you know, they were surprised. I think in this one, they they poured so much energy into that, but there's no real model. Um, and, and the third thing is to sort of, I think the Democratic Party really needs to kind of come together and figure out who it is. And, you know, there, there was a lot of pushback about our Democrats is the Democratic Party, the party of Hollywood. Do they care about it's like they've kind of they've kind of lost their way along the way. You know, it used to be the party of Pell Grants and the working class. And I think Joe Biden tried to bring it back to that. But I think there's a lot more work to do there. Is the third time a charm or is it two and out for the Parnes Allen partnership of the Campaign Chronicles? Are we going to see a 2024 edition? <laughs> TBA. <laughs> way, way, way to keep them on the edge of our seats, uh, Jonathan. Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen. The book is called Lucky. Folks, I've got Shattered on my bookshelf. I'm looking at that one. I'm just waiting to put Lucky up next to it, and I've got space for a third. So hopefully Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes will indeed give it one more go around for old time's sake. Pick it up, Lucky, available now wherever books are sold. How Joe Biden barely won the presidency. Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, thank you so much for joining us again on Strange Days. Thank you, Fernand. Thanks, Fernand. You know, I got to tell you, there are a lot of folks who say, don't buy into the myth making. There was no luck involved. It was 81 million American voters, thank you very much, that made Joe Biden the president of the United States. 
But I got to tell you, after listening to Jonathan and Amy, I think they paint a very compelling case that it was indeed a little bit of the luck of the Irish that may have gotten Joe Biden not only across the finish line, but in a position to even be the Democratic nominee in the first place. And I suspect that President Biden himself would be the first to agree with that assessment. Nonetheless, folks, you got to pick up a copy of Lucky. Indeed, a must read, must have, not just to give you a sense of how the election was decided, but also those behind the scenes stories on how a major presidential campaign is run. Having been a veteran of five of those, I can tell you myself, I read and inhaled each page and each word with great anticipation. But speaking of great anticipation, you hear my man Wayne, he's there in the distance and he's saying, Fernand, You've been off for a little bit, but it's time to bring it on home for a landing. The Strange Days podcast must come in for a close, at least for this week's edition. But I do want to say thank you to all of you who asked while we were on a little mini hiatus. Hey, we miss you. Where are you? Well, like I said, we were just recharging the batteries a little bit, but we are back with a vengeance. And you are going to love what we have in store for you over the next couple of weeks and in the months ahead. But before I I say adios. I got to say thank you one more time to Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. Pick up a copy of Lucky. And also to the most important people in the Strange Days podcast universe. Who is that, you ask? Well, it's you. That's who. Those of you who listen to the podcast, you long timers, short timers, and even you first timers, welcome aboard. We love having you aboard. And folks, I promise we love having you aboard. It's time to say adios, but not before I always remind you to... Wake up! Get smart. And then... Just follow the money. Peace, love, freedom, and democracy. Folks, do me one more favor, if you haven't done so already. Get that vaccine. Make sure to get it. When you're doing it, wear a mask before, during, and after. There is light at the end of this pandemic tunnel, and it all happens that much sooner. If you get the vaccine, you get the shot in the arm, and you wear a mask. You do those three together, we're going to save lots of lives. It's time to say adios. See you next week, everybody. <laughs>